Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. In this episode, I continue the conversation with Jacob Kurian, an IT industry veteran and presently the Honorary Secretary of the Association of People with Disability in Bangalore. In the previous episode, Jacob talked about a cold relationship with a senior executive at Unisys and how that changed because of one opportunity with GE. He mentioned a call received from GE to explore the possibility of getting software developed in India. In this episode, he shares what happened to the GE opportunity and how that was a significant event for the Indian IT services industry. Then goes on to share his personal decision to return to India and joining Titan Industries as the chief marketing officer and taking on the responsibility of the chief information officer as well. In Shifting the role from being an IT solutions provider to a solutions consumer, what are some of the challenges, such as getting users to converge on IT requirements, handling production issues that can impact the core business? And finally, we talk about his investment role that he had taken on and tips on what it takes for a techie to become an entrepreneur and the need for short releases, validating cycles, and not making good the enemy of perfect. Listen on. There's a call from uh, G. Reto uh, wants you to go up and meet this guy called Ed Skyko. He has some interest in doing some work in India. So what had happened was Jack Welsh had made his famous first trip to India. And Jack went back and told all his divisions, I want you to do work in India. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Ed Skyco was the CIO of GE. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I don't think Ed Skyco could even find India on the map. Okay? <laughs> I think if he gave him a map, there's India. <laughs> but he was in a panic. So I went up to meet him and Ed said, uh, uh, you know, started with, do you all have computers in India? You know, I'm the CIO of GE. I'm supposed to give some work to India. Do you all have computers? So the fact that we were in boroughs and it was an American name and all that, I think gave them some confidence because they also then called boroughs head office and asked. Now, GE was a 100% IBM shop. Mm-hmm. But getting a say-so from a fellow American corporation was, was important. And we decided with him that we would pick four IT companies. These IT companies would go and present to all the major GE divisions. And at the end of it, GE would give out some contracts. So around early 90s, okay? So 1991. So we picked... Uh, TCS. And then we picked two small companies that were doing basically PC 
work because we were mainframe guys. We didn't do PC stuff. You know, it was low tech. Yeah. The two PC firms we picked was Wipro and Infosys. Wow. <laughs> okay. And these four firms led by Pratash. Okay. Pratash was the head. I don't remember who was on the TCS team, who was on the Infosys team, but I'm sure many of the legends of today's IT business were probably there on it. And we went and gave made pictures at Aero Engines. Uh, you know, this G was the biggest company, diversified mm-hmm. lighting, locomotives. And the question was still not answered. How are we going to do anything? Do this. Okay? Because we had no IBM mainframe. But uh, the guys in Seeps were very entrepreneurial. They went and got some computer time in, I think, CMC or somewhere else. And we, we said, no, no, bid. Mm-hmm. So we put in bids. And because we were um, the coordinating thing and because they were doing trial projects, they gave projects to everybody. So they gave some to TBL, they gave some to TCS, they gave some to Wipro and Enfys. Later, uh, TBL found out that we were going to do work for IBM on IBM mainframes. And instead of thinking about it strategically, saying, wow, this might give Unisys a segue into a giant account, Mm -hmm. they were petty about it and we were not allowed to do anything. But I mentioned this because To me, I think GE's stamp of approval for Indian IT was, I think, a landmark moment of credibility for U.S. corporations. That Mm -hmm. if GE can do it, then, you know, it must be kosher, must be legit. And of those projects, TCS, of course, was already large, but I think for the longest time, G was a real bellwether client for Infosys and Wipro. And I think they grew into the giants they are today out of that little set of projects that came, that came about in this rather, you know, <laughs> happenstance manner. <laughs> I'm sure history will rewrite backwards that it was a great strategic move and it was already on the plans and we really wanted to penetrate GE and so we got in all that stuff. But I happened to be there when the call came. And so it was nice to be there at a moment. Though again, we got motte from it, you know. <laughs> but I think the sector and the industry did great. We decided in 1993, okay, after living in the US for five years, I had an extremely successful uh, time there. Uh, when we left, we had an order book that was 100% of the next year's target. Okay, so I don't think I've ever achieved that or very few people have that luck. We did so many, many different things, which I won't bore everybody with. But we decided we wanted to come back to India. My wife and I were living in two different cities uh, and was living with... One leg in India, one leg here was proving to be challenging. We said we should either quit and join the many, many TBLers who decided to take a green card and stay on, or we should come back to India and try to see if we can make a go of it. 
the number one question I'm asked is how come I didn't join Infosys or Wipro, okay, and hmm. be an IT billionaire talking to you. But the reality is when we looked at coming back to India, the scale of Infosys and um, Wipro was so small compared to what Tata Burroughs was or Tata Unisys was and TCS was that uh, really they were not even an option. Okay, They were really, I mean, I'm sure I'd have got a job if I had tried, but I didn't even consider it because it seemed like I would be going backwards in time to running a small region of the many regions that I ran. Mm-hmm. People forget that after 10 years of Infosys being around, their revenue was still at $1 million. What they have achieved since is truly remarkable and hats off to them for everything they've achieved. But just to contextualize that in 92, when we were thinking of coming back, there was only TCS in us. Everybody else was rounding off errors. And so I went back to the, the task group and they said, okay, there's some opportunity in Titan. Uh, Titan is looking for a guy with international sales experience who's prepared to come back to India and who knows watches. Okay, mm-hmm. so I said, look, I have zero knowledge of watches. <laughs> I had only one watch, that too, which my wife had bought and given me at uh, that time. But Titan mm-hmm. was a hugely successful company. We also made a decision that we should not stay in Bombay because a lot of people who came back to India were back in the US in six months' time. And since we had neither home nor heart in Bombay, we said, let's make it easier on ourselves uh, and come back to India to go to Bangalore, where my mother was living. So I persuaded Tata Burroughs, Tata Unisys, to let me go. They, I get to meet Mr. Zerxus Desai here. And Zerxus says, uh, as an interview, goes for a walk with me. It says, okay, fine. Two out of three is not bad. <laughs> uh, you have some international sales experience. You're prepared to come back to India. If you, you don't know watches, it's fine. You can choose watches. Mm. So we come back. I joined Titan. Everybody there says, oh, you must be our new EDP manager. So I said, uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> it was also the time when every Tata company, and they were at one count, almost eight Tata companies who had started IT export business. So... The guy who was my supposed to be my boss, who hadn't, was quite committed that he had interviewed me and he thought, task guy, another arrogant person be, told me, fine, I don't really need you in the watch and business, but you can start a software. <laughs> so I told him, why would I leave the largest software company, MNC company, and come and join me to start a software business? I mean, are you nuts? I don't want to do this. Mm. So I went from being almost king of the hoop, coming back with this very patriotic feeling that some of us must come back to India, etc. And in my first day in my new job, being told that I really didn't have that the guy who I was going to report with didn't want me. Everybody else looked at me and said, but he has no experience in watches at all. What is he here for? So I by now had learned that 
if one could survive as a non-techie in a tech company, everything else is easier. Is is okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can cross any other bar, any <laughs> bar that you want uh, in terms of knowledge. But I did realize that Titan had was very antiquated as far as its IT systems were concerned. And anytime you want to do something, you know, it was a hodgepodge of staff. It was poorly led. I don't think anybody understood that. So I would keep complaining to my boss. And one day he called me and said, okay, stop complaining. You are now the CIO of that. Hmm. I said, what? <laughs> so, but things were so bad that I said, okay, so just sitting and complaining and never having a solution, we might as well just get on with it. So I was both chief marketing officer and CIO. And I must say that the CIO job, uh, after 10 years in IT, I learned more in the three or four years that I was CIO or CTO of that. But how difficult it is to try and get users to converge on a set of things. You you will remember how your used to complaining to us front end guys, get the spec signed off, get the functional spec signed, get the distance. <laughs> and we would be like, oh, what these guys are doing? Why don't you damn sign it? But when you went to the other side, you realize, oh my God, it's like herding cats. You know, you think you get three guys in one room, two are wrong. And it's really, really hard from the user side to actually come up with a set of specifications that somebody could develop. And if you didn't do that properly, then your know, own life was a continuous loop of constant. Mm-hmm. If you release it, doesn't work the that the other. So that was a whole different and quite invaluable, unintended experience right for mm-hmm. After four years, fortunately, I hired somebody and passed. I had a proper qualified CIO who then went on to serve Titan well for many years. But yeah, that was an interesting. Having been on the supplier side, when you move to a consumer side or the buyer side in Titan, were there any lessons that you learned or any tricks that you used to adopt on the supplier side? Were you saying the same uh, scripts being played and then were you able to handle that differently as a buyer? So I think the first thing you try to do always is you try to repeat successful formula Mm -hmm. and then you realize that it's just not going to work for two or three very important reasons on the client side. Mm. One is talent is completely different. Talent levels are completely different. Uh, You know, in Tata Unisys, we were fortunate that guys like you came from the most blue chip of institutions, educational institutions, backgrounds, etc. Uh, a lot of the talent you typically find in an EDP environment or an internal IT department is typically ingrown talent. You know, people who've worked in that shop for many years. And depending on how much exposure they got, uh, their worldviews were kind of driven by that. People were always hungry to learn, keen to learn, etc. But there was a limitation mismatch in terms of talent. The third thing that I realized when I went there was Titan was staunchly 
uh, homegrown. Okay, they had refused to bring in any external consultant, um, tech firm, etc., other than hardware and infrastructure side. But on the big business application side, uh, really didn't have a history of working with consultants. So partly because we had come from that side, I had I could quickly assess that, okay, there's some value that an outsider would bring. If nothing else, to just sort out all these many uh, conflicting claims that uh, different people had. Uh, it would also significantly augment the talent that we had a limitation in terms of what we could hope to have inside the house. And the third big, big difference from uh, the days you were on the uh, service provider side was you were constantly in a production environment. Mm. So, you know, everything ran off software, whether it's purchasing, production planning, shop uh, job cards, uh, even dispatchers, warehouses, everything, right? Mm-hmm. So, whereas typically when you're doing development in the in a software company, you are cognizant of it, but you say, oh, we'll do that when we go parallel and okay. after user acceptance testing, then when we switch off in parallel is when we are juggling these two balls. Mm-hmm. But that's usually a short period and we disappear from it. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you're constantly juggling this uh, uh, need to keep the production environment running while also trying to draw the new template and build for the next environment. And at times, that can get quite tiring because priorities are due uh, focus on generating this month's uh, production plan, purchase orders, releases to vendors, etc. And somewhere there'll be a glitch, then everybody has to rush to fix that glitch because that will hold up production. And production isn't something, once you lose a production day, you can't really catch up on it. Mm. So in a way, it was very different. Um, I, I remember, in, you know, at least in the seeps end where you could do your thing and you didn't have 50 guys saying this isn't working, that isn't working, mm. my PC isn't running, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you had to juggle that while doing this. So I'd say these were the big differences. Uh, they had never gone outside, never worked with a consulting firm. Talent was different. And uh, third was this whole need to keep production running, uh, operations running while you were thinking about the long and short of it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think we have been talking for quite some time, uh, but I can't close without asking, you know, one question about the next phase of your career as an investor. So there are actually two, two questions that I have. Now, one, as an investor, when you saw pitches from, let's say, software, you know, ideas or projects, and non-software projects. Uh, Since this is primarily for software people, are there any patterns that you see or any things that the software pitches or people who are from a technical background, so to say? Uh, There's a second part is, what does it take for a techie to become an entrepreneur? 
I think the biggest thing that was often missing was what we would call uh, an explanation of product market fit. Okay. Um, people who were very technical um, seem to believe that because I have created this great uh, product, okay. yeah, app, product, whatever it is, uh, people will come. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like the old, if you build it, they will come kind of statement. Mm -hmm. And very often would not understand why you needed uh, to actually explain to, to an investor who quite often is not an expert in that area, mm. a simple answer to, okay, so what's the problem you're solving? How big is that problem? And how do you plan to eventually monetize this? Even if there's a curve at some mm -hmm. point, or who's going to buy it? I think now people, the environment has evolved enough over the last 10 years that these are questions that people now ask of themselves before they kind of, there are workshops, there are boot camps, there's so many resources available on the net. But when we first transitioned, when I first transitioned to this, quite often that would be the thing. And then you would have people throwing a tantrum, uh, saying these guys are not patriots, they are not supporting Indian R&D, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. Forgetting that the money that we had was not our own money, that the money was given as a fiduciary responsibility to the fund investors, and they had to invest that money and return it at the end of the period. And so each person looked at an opportunity uh, and then made that kind of subjective assessment of will this eventually work? Will this team eventually take it to market? Will this solution eventually be able to withstand a Google or somebody else coming into that turf? What differences does it have that are unique from everything else in the competition? But instead, everybody who was turned down quite often tends to take it very personally uh, without giving credence to the fact that maybe that fund manager was uh, just an ignorant ass. Okay, he just didn't get your great vision. Hmm. You should move on now and find the guy who believes in your vision. There may be another guy who believes, but this guy has is either too ignorant to understand your genius or it doesn't fit. And you know, funds also have specific mandate areas. They have specific limitations of how much they want to invest in a particular sector. So there's a whole complex set of things, but I would often find myself on stage listening to people in the audience freaking out that we should support it, we should do this when that's really not their job, you know. Mm. So what does it take for a techie to become an entrepreneur? Are there training programs I can attend or get some degree or intern with somebody? I think what you see in the U.S. is what a lot of uh, a good template to follow that many people are following, which is you try to assemble a team where you have complementary parts. Okay, You don't have to be the guy who knows everything. You can play in your area of competence as long as you have two other people or one, one or two other people who complement you. Okay, So I can go back to my... TBLDs, 
you know, most techies felt who are these marketing guys, they don't add any value. <laughs> they just win bags. And those who can't code go to marketing, you know, was the kind of uh, thing. But everybody has a role to play. And you will find that many founders in the US of Indian origin have chosen to remain CTOs. They don't want the CEO role because CEO role has certain complexities to it. But to everybody, whether you're building a solution or this thing, I think going and testing it with people or businesses or companies, whoever is going to be your end client is, I think, an invaluable way for you to learn yourself. Because hearing it firsthand is always far better than hearing it through grapevines or research reports or, you know, um, magic quadrant reports, etc. So I think you should play to your strength, but recognize that success usually requires a complementarity of capabilities. And most funders will also look beyond a single individual. Okay, they also want to see team, they want to see team dynamics because they also don't want to put their money on, say I give my, give a million dollars to Shiv Guru and tomorrow he says, I don't feel like doing this. It's all equity investment. So it's at 100% risk. They also want to see, is this a good team? Will they work together? Do they complement each other? Do they have similar values? Especially in early stage investing, there is really little to show. You know, it's more, a lot of it is what judgment the uh, investor is drawing from A, your vision, but also how he thinks you're going to be able to execute it. And I think in today's world, you know that it is life cycles are so short. Uh, anything you start today and say, you know, in 10 years, I'll be ready, you're probably obsolete. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that we, uh, that I try to share to people is, um, you know, don't make good the enemy of uh, great. You know, while you're trying to make a great product, uh, you may have, miss the boat because somebody else has come in and you know new words like agile and this and that is about doing multiple rapid iterations than building a great release working for years on it and Mm -hmm. then coming out the market may have shifted by then given how things are moving so everyone typically says no i just have two more features and it's going to be fantastic and i just add one more feature (laughs) and then i'll take it to test it and you always like show it to somebody They will give you feedback. It will help you also prioritize what you feel is important. So again, when we were on the client side, some of the things that people would come and pitch us, we would listen to them and say, you just totally don't get it, okay? That is totally not important to us, okay? Whereas nine and 10 on your 10-point slide, that's like really important to us. So to get that perspective, if you talk to people, discuss it, show it, they will tell you, look, nine and 10 are really important, not one Mm. to eight. One to Mm. eight, whether it's there or not, I don't care. Mm. So unless you get that thing happening, and I I think today's entire philosophy of development and software building and tool building and APIs and reusable blocks and all that stuff, um, 
is stuff that we used to fantasize about in the days of link and <laughs> you know that so all that is a reality today is for somebody to be able to rapidly prototype instead of um, and that's what we would encourage everybody keep testing the market keep showing it to people get feedback keep iterating your product and don't wait till it's perfect because nobody is expecting perfection so related question is uh, should a techie because a lot of uh, techies do approach me or ask for advice what should i do because a couples we are both working maybe one of us can have a job and then i'm willing to take a risk so what should i do while on one hand we say that you know, follow your passion if you really have a problem to solve look at all that but then they also get influenced by saying oh edtech there's a lot of money flowing into edtech now should i get into edtech should i how do i pick an area to find a problem yeah so i don't i mean the answer to that is really uh, it's there on the investor side as well in on the investor side we call it fomo Okay, fear of missing out. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't know anything about education, but edtech, everyone's doing it. Oh my god, I got to invest in edtech. Um, so I think this uh, thing reminds me also of two thousand eight when everybody wanted to do a startup. Everybody wanted to do a, you know. Uh, right now, it's almost embarrassing to say that you're working in a regular company. You're not in a startup. You're not bootstrapping. You're not. so i i don't know what the answer to that question is i do know however that no matter what you say they'll finally go and do what they want so i've now made peace with the facts that of all the kids sent to me they come because their parents or somebody said go and talk to this old man but they are eventually going to go and do exactly what they please and that's the way they sh- it should be you know <laughs> wonderful jacob i think that's a very positive thing and tells uh... everyone to go no you say find your passion and do it yeah thanks a lot jacob we thank siddharth for the music and anita for promoting the software people stories if you like this episode please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast at pm-powerconsulting dot com.